You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. One of the signs that I have a good podcast is that after I end recording, I end up talking to the person for another hour, which is what just happened when I'm talking to Joan Ball, who is an associate professor of marketing at the Peter J. Tobin College of Business at St. John's University um, and is the founder of the Womb Service Design Lab. Her new book is called Stop, Ask, Explore, Learn to Navigate Change in Times of Uncertainty. And I'm going to tell you her yes and story. You got to wait to the end. This is a top five. I know that knocks someone out. I'm not going to say who it knocks out. Uh, and I haven't really ranked them, but this is a top five yes and story. All right. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Joan Ball, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Oh yeah, it's great to have you um, here. You write in your new book, quote, inquiry requires shifting from a knowing orientation to a learning orientation, which is counterintuitive in environments where decisiveness is rewarded, end quote. And this feels to me like the central problem we have as a culture regarding things like school and work. We have the system rewards are are about getting things correct as opposed to actually gaining wisdom. Is that right? Yeah, that's certainly what I found in my work. And there is not only not reward for not knowing, but there is actually like, if you don't know, we don't want our leaders to not know. We don't want our leaders to tell us we're not sure what to do, but we are in the process right now of learning because that, that feels wishy-washy or that feels um, like we can't trust them. And so there's a real paradox here that I think is leading to a lot of the challenges that we face. Yeah. And there's another one that you you point out early in the book. You say, 
quote, identifying the appropriate tools for the circumstances and engaging them in helpful ways when they're needed is a skill we rarely discuss or practice. As a result, we often confuse having a tool with knowing how to use it in practice. And this is a thing we talk about all the time because improv is a practice. So many people like, you can have the knowledge, but if you don't know what to do with that knowledge, it seems useless. It's exactly right. And we spend a lot of our development work and time having people collect tools, right? And and I use a lot, you know, if you, you, I know you read the book, so you know that uh, metaphor matters to me a lot. And I use a carpentry metaphor here a lot. Um, having a toolbox full of tools is a great start. It's better than not having tools, but becoming a practitioner that knows how to use those tools and knows how to adapt when the tools don't work for the quirkiness of a wall that's supposed to be 90 degrees, but is really 97 degrees. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the practices. And that is a very, very different thing than reading the next book, getting the next big idea and being able to use that in water cooler conversation Uh, and moving from water cooler conversation to actual practice in context, I think hopefully is going to be the next stage of uh, personal and professional development that we're focusing on. So this, this, the power and impact of metaphors is something I'd love to dig in with you. And this maybe started for me when I talked to Annie Murphy-Paul, because she talks about the metaphor of thinking that we get, get wrong. And that, that was very powerful for me. And it's been in a couple different uh, books, and you talk about it. So what is it that's so powerful about these metaphors? Because you could just say, well, they're just words. They're, you know, how, how, do, they, how do they have power? Well, metaphor is words and, and, Mm -hmm. and we see metaphor and poetry and so on and so forth, but conceptual metaphors are actually a sense-making tool. And that's where I like to focus on metaphor as a sense-making tool. And so when we're in a circumstance, there's a real reason that we called email email because we knew what mail was and now we added electronic to Uh it. And, uh, a car wasn't a car when they first came on the market. They were horseless carriages. And there was a reason for that as well, because making sense of what this new contraption was by grounding it in a familiar metaphor is a part of how we frame and reframe. So we talk a good game. Oh, you need to reframe at a point of impact. Mm-hmm. And when we say, well, how do you do that? How do I reframe in the moment? Metaphors can be a really, really helpful way to do that. And also, sometimes when we're really fearing transition, fearing change, it's because we have attached a metaphor to a circumstance that we don't even know is there. We're not even conscious of it. But when we think about the transition from college to career, let's say, for my students as a, um, as, as a, a chasm, as a dark hole that they have to jump over, no wonder you would be anxiety ridden by right. that. Right. But if you can begin to work with someone, identify the metaphors they're using and where they're unhelpful, start to think about, well, what's another way that you could think about this? It's actually quite remarkable how quickly someone can go from limited to liberated in their thinking about something when they just shift from an unhelpful metaphor to a helpful one. It's, it's interesting you started with email because I think about as a young person getting mail and, 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 and the idea of a, reading a letter and the time it took to get it. And, and, and email is just totally the opposite. It, it is a bombardment. And like, it is the other thing I ask people. It's like, Hey, who trained you on email? N- no one. 
like we got it and now we're stuck with this thing. And I, and I've really worked hard at unsubscribing from things and not having a, a, a deep inbox based on interviews I've done with people because I, f- I found my, my days were eaten up by responding to unimportant emails. Well, and what's interesting is the young people who I work with, they don't use email anymore. Uh, they really don't. They, they, they've just moved away from it. And so you have a lot of people who are middle age or even late 30s who are frustrated by the fact that people who are 19, 20 years old, I sent them the email. Why don't they know I sent them the email? And it's mm. because they don't use it, right? So meeting people where they are and helping people to make sense of where they are. Right? That's really the heart and the soul of my work and what I think about in these contexts is how do, how do we, rather than thinking about things in their ideal state, how do we actually make sense of what we're encountering right now? And yes, we may want to change the systems that we live in. We may want to change the way that things are done, but that's, that's the glacial long-term. How do we live in systems that are unhelpful right now as we move towards systems that might be more helpful in the future. And we don't talk about it. We Mm. really spend much more time casting a vision for a better future than we do. How might I tomorrow operate better or differently or contribute to positive change in my context, in my way with my skill set and my capacities. Uh, And that's, that's, um, that's where I focus. Uh, when I was talking to Run Jay Gulati about his book on purpose, he had this lovely uh, um, fable uh, about about a bird always flying forward but looking back. And and uh, I, when I look back at at my dad, it has completely influenced my my career. Uh, interestingly, he interviewed people on WGN Radio, which, which is where his mm-hmm. podcast lists. But but my job at Second City was was you know he was always he was always celebrity adjacent, you know, uh, in, in in that world. Your dad was a New York City firefighter. Yes, he um, was. T- tell me how that influenced your your work you're doing right now. Well, it's so interesting because if you had asked me this question when I set out to do this work, I would have said in no way whatsoever because right. I wasn't thinking about it at, at, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the work unfolded and I began to really look at my own career and what had happened across the time of my own career and just the difference in the sorts of careers that people had when they could get a job as a New York City fireman and now be a fireman for 35 years or 40 years and then retire. Um, When I got a job with Con Edison in New York City, uh, when I was in my 20s, my my father was quick to say, this is great. You have a job for life because Mm. there's still at that point, even in the mid 90s, there was this perception that a job for life was something that was still attainable and available. And so there's that aspect of it, of really just thinking about the shift that we've gone through in terms of just stability or the potential for stability. But then on the other side, that whole idea of being steeped in emergency planning, right? it is, you know, we grew up having fire drills in our house and there's a yeah. reason for that because he was a person who was pulling people out of burning houses. And there was, we knew where we would meet outside of the house if there was a fire and so on and so forth. And then I, in my career, wound up doing uh, emergency planning work for a nuclear power plant outside of New York City. 
And so this idea of how do you how do you deal with emergencies? How do you deal with emergent situations uh, was something that I had dealt with personally and then professionally. When I got into this work about trying to understand why people are stuck, I hadn't really made the connection that that stuckness, that that catalyzing disruption was a lot like dealing with an emergency situation. It wasn't until I worked with hundreds of people and then dug into the psychology of how people deal with disruption that I realized, oh, the mindset here is very, very similar. So what can we learn from emergency services and emergency planning about how to really navigate well in times when we feel like our hair is on fire? Uh, when I started working with academics and a variety of different programs uh, and and figured out what was like solid evidence and, and what wasn't, uh, there were basically two areas of solid evidence around improvisation. And one was post-disasters in terms of how people uh, responded and Carl Weick's stuff around sense-making, which is interesting because you touch on both of those areas because improvisation, of course, is you're steeped in these traditions and that 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 you kind of um, automatically know what 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 to do or how to do, and you do that in communion with others and quick listening and that sort of thing. And White stuff was on aircraft carriers, and that that sort of, that that need to well the need to pivot, and you have a whole chapter saying don't pivot, which which you talk later about pivoting. We'll get into that. Uh, but I just I found that very interesting as I was reading this book, not expe- not expecting that that connection to be there and being like, oh no, of course it is because. We have to learn how to make our work without a script. Well, exactly. And you're having to react quickly to a disruption and an interruption, right? Mm -hmm. And so really, this work, what I found is that disruption and interruption is like the great uh, equalizer. Yeah. Because no matter how, whether you're um, highly educated or not educated at all, whether you are highly trained and have all of the models and frameworks memorized, or you're doing it by feel, when the path that you're on is disrupted or interrupted in any way, shape, or form, we have that first, there's a first reaction Mm -hmm. that comes into our minds, that comes into our bodies. And even I would suspect in improvisation, when you're in that, when you're in that volley with someone, I'm sure that there is both a mental and an embodied reaction to that. There's an energy that comes into flow. that. It's a flow state. And if you're doing well, I'm doing right. Being, being And I'm sure that when it's not working, when it yeah. doesn't feel like flow, there's also an energy <laughs> that comes into the body. Yeah, that's not a good energy. That's a terrible. Yeah. But, but what you were, because you practice this, you are set up for that to happen. So it doesn't necessarily stop the action or it allows you when you do end to be like, okay, that didn't work. Let's move on to the thing that will work. And that sort of preparation, that sort of pre-work, pre-training yeah. is exactly what my work points to is this idea of, you know what? I call them in my work, what now moments right? Mm -hmm. Whether they're positive or negative, whether it's that you just got the call that you lost your job or whether you just uh, had the love of your life ask you to marry them, right? This kind of disruption or interruption. What do we do with our first thought? And then how do we act with our second thought? That very, very slim place is critically important to whether we get curious and get into that flow that you're describing Mm -hmm. or whether it becomes 
fear and frustration and uh, avoidance and quitting and so on and so forth. Uh, I want you to talk about the exercise that you do in class. And it's one where you ask your students to imagine they're sitting on a beach. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 and I do this with, uh, I do it with my students. I do it with, at organizations with groups of professionals. And effectively what I do is people will walk in the room and they'll see a beautiful um, sandy beach, blue water. Uh, I usually do it with video. So you can also hear the water coming in. So you place yourself there. And then I invite people in the room to imagine what they would be doing if they were on that beach right now. And because it's so gorgeous and lovely, and uh, most of them will then start talking about what chairs will be there, what drinks they're having, whether or not there's going to be umbrellas. Some of them are going to be alone because they need solitude. Other people will be partying with groups, but whatever it is, it tends to be positive on the first ask. Then I show a different photograph, and this is a boat uh, that is half capsized. And then I tell people, well, you are now... (laughs) (laughs) on that beach, but you just swam from this boat. And I asked them to imagine what they could, should, or would be doing in that time. And then I changed the slide and I show them an image of a half capsized boat. And now I prompt them with, you just swam from that boat and you're on this beautiful beach. Mm. What now? Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. First of all, the switch from beautiful party, relaxing, when I could predict myself as being in an enjoyable spot changes very, very quickly to, and it's really interesting, no matter what the group is, students, professionals, everything in between, you have one group that opens up that is all about the rescue. Now it's, we're going to put SOS on the beach and we're going to go swim out to the boat and see if we can get resources. Uh, you know, is there a flare, right? They're, they're, they're on the, we're going to rescue. You get another group who goes immediately to, we've got to build shelter. They go, you know, straight to naked and afraid. Uh-huh. And then you have another group who watches the other groups who tend to get pretty excited pretty quickly. And they tend to kind of pull back. And depending upon how long I let it go, they even can totally disengage. This third group sometimes will just, you know, pull out their phones. They're pretty much waiting for the two power groups to decide how they're going to proceed. And then they'll jump on one or stay removed from them. And I go and speak to those people while I'm giving room for the other folks to to figure out their solutions. And then I stop everyone and I'll ask them, you know, to explain what they would do. And they go into great detail. Sometimes the rescue and, um, and, and um, shelter people wind up arguing with one another about what the priorities should be. Mm -hmm. And then I ask them, so what if there was a resort around the corner and they all stop and we all laugh and it becomes an opener for this conversation about how we are so very trained to move very, very quickly make decisive decisions, and that opening up space to actually understand the new terrain is not something that we do as our knee jerk Mm -hmm. and how that translates to the way we respond to things like COVID, (laughs) the way we translate Mm -hmm. to things like um, uh, personal or professional disruptions that throw us uh, off track. And we've, we've that pivot term We've underscored that with the notion of quick pivots and then learn by doing with quick pivots. 
I'm a big fan of learning by doing, but I think we can open up some learning space so that we're learning by doing in a way that uh, actually identifies the questions and actually identifies what it is we're trying to learn before we just start reactively trying to learn anything. This is the stop. This is the, the, this idea of like, just take a moment, take a beat, and then, and, then, and, and, and then you've got the ask and listen. But that, but that stop is the thing that I think is very, very hard for people. Because uh, it's just not, culturally speaking, it's not uh, rewarded. And also, people have genuine fear that if they stop, that yeah. things yeah. will break, right? They, yeah. There really is, we don't have time to stop. There is no way to stop. We cannot stop. And that's, you asked before how my father's work as a firefighter comes into the work. It wound up being one of the uh, metaphors that I use pretty frequently with people who uh, will say that they don't think that they have time to stop because when firefighters uh, arrive at the scene, they actually don't jump off the back of the truck, grab a hose and run in the front door. Right. Firefighters who I think we can make an argument are some of the people who have the least time to act mm-hmm. of, of, of most people in most professions actually do create an emergency operations center. It may be very, very fast and dirty, and they will gather whatever information they can that they know is incomplete. Yeah. Because while on the one hand, they have full confidence that they know fire. Right. Their expertise of being extremely knowledgeable about fire. Well, that's one thing. But they know they don't know this fire. Right. Right. And that difference between I know fire and I know this fire is fundamental because ultimately you fight a fire differently when there's people in the building than when there's not. You fight a fire differently when it's an oil fire compared to whether it's a wood fire. The nuance about what sort of fire you're dealing with can really inform the way that you approach it. So creating that beat to your point and gathering the best information you can, and then going into that next step with a humility of recognizing based upon Mm -hmm. limited information, let's try this, but now let's go in, not because we have solved how we're going to fight this fire, but this is our first approach. And if we find something in there that we're not Uh, we weren't expecting, then how do we go into plan B and C? And I would expect, I don't know about your business of improv as much as I know about some of these other things that I've studied, Mm -hmm. but I would imagine there's some similarity there as well. Yeah, completely. Um, So, so I found this book so useful in terms of giving me, you, you are using new metaphors. You are, you're providing some, some new language around this area. I've interviewed some other folks who, who've uh, in academia who are studying, you know, ambiguity, paradoxes, that sort of of thing. And then I I haven't done the interview yet, but I, one of my publicists like basically made me interview this. um, I'm about to come up and interview him. Don Dapani, who was a Hindu monk for 10 years. Uh, and then became a consultant and entrepreneur. And he has this, uh, the book is on focus. And his, his contention is we aren't uh, ever trained to be focused. Uh, and I'm like, oh my God, that's so right. Like we tell little kids, you can focus up. It's like, who taught them? And so if you, and if you don't know it, you can't practice it. But this, this, the one, the one that really got me, I'm curious if this speaks to you at all. He says, I want you to think about the mind as mansion, the mind as a bunch of different rooms. And then I want you to think of awareness as like a glowing orb 
uh, that you put into a room. And it can't be in two rooms at the same time. Uh, but it's so, so you are where you put your attention. You are not your mind. And this was very, and, and where you put your attention uh, uh, comes with energy. And so you can imagine if you are in your fear brain, and we know this from improvisation, you're not going to improvise very well, you know, but if you can reduce your judgment of self and others, uh, reduce your fame, your fear and shame parts of your brain, you are then open to expression and curiosity and input and others. Um, and from the fMRI studies we've done with Charles Lim, you know, that is, it is different from when you're improvising as opposed to when you're in a rote uh, uh, scripted state. Does that, does that resound at all? I would say that what really resonates to me about what you just said is that point of inflection between fear and another choice. Yeah. And you said something about if we can reduce our fear. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting, I would like to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Because to your point about people never teaching people how to focus. Yeah. Um, that notion of reducing one's fear. We're not taught that. And they are in a fear response. Mm-hmm. Not only are we not taught that, but it may actually neither be possible or even helpful. Because I, I, sometimes fear is actually a re, an appropriate response to yes, a circumstance. For sure. But what I do really embrace is that at that point, at that point where we are in a fear state, that we can separate our feeling of fear from how we choose to engage with the moment. So it may be saying something similar. I'll listen to the interview that you have with this, with this, uh, with this monk, because I'm sure that, you know, there's thousands of years of thinking about this kind of question. I'm just, I'm vamping with you, but that point of inflection between fear and curiosity. And I do favor uh, any more positive emotion is helpful there, but curiosity in particular is of interest to me, but not necessarily about feeling curious, but actually practicing curiosity as a practice in that moment, which is a little different than having to change one's feelings because changing one's feelings is hard. It is also, it places us in a situation where we only almost have a chore before we can move into the agency of inquiry. And I like the idea of removing that barrier so that I can actually be afraid and curious. I can do both of those things at the same time. But if I am really intent on practicing, it doesn't happen naturally. If I'm not practicing it, it Mm -hmm. probably won't happen naturally. But if I can actually train myself or practice beforehand. I don't like the word training really, but if I can develop a practice where when I get that what now moment and I'm having that first knee jerk reaction that I actually can acknowledge that. Okay. I'm in that first reaction and I am going to, regardless of how I feel, begin opening up an inquiry about now, what is the territory I am in? Whatever this disruption is, there's a new territory here. And how now do I want to engage that territory that we actually can have a lot more agency in uncertain times, but we also can have a lot more agency even when we're afraid. 
All right, let, let me explore the fear thing just a little bit more. Um, because yes, of course, <clears throat> the fear response is built in and it's valuable with regard to not getting hit by a car <clears throat> or, or whatever. But what we find, of course, both in our classes, but then the work we do with corporate corporations is when we have them do improv exercises, the people who are in fear of looking stupid, of course, fear of, of that, that, kind of, that, that is a, that is a not useful fear. And so, uh, something I played with a little bit is that a lot of that lives in the body. Um, and so to, to battle some, some recent sort of phobias I've had, uh, when I am maybe driving on a highway and I'm not comfortable and a truck goes by me, I smile and it just Love pushes it. it out of my body. And I'm like, oh my God, that's like, a, that's a, that is a technique. And I'm like, oh, it's a, it's an embodied practice that, that, you know, and then, so, you know, how else can I sort of express that so that there, what I'll call the irrational fear, uh, or the needless fear because people are walking around with those in offices every single day. I mean, all I day just, long, all day, all long. day long. And, yeah. and as a result, we know that that kind of fear leads to binary thinking. It's less creative thinking. It's less flow. All of those things that we're talking about where I, I think we fully agree. You and I, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. the place that I'm adding a little pause into it mm-hmm. is I work with many people who don't get on to the other side of it because they get stuck in trying to get rid of their fear. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the, never going to happen. It's getting like getting rid of, of bias. It's exactly right. It's exact, and so that's the that's the only yeah. pause here. We're in full agreement. Yeah, but I don't want to. Um, I, I feel the same way about when people say you can't love other people till you love yourself. Because I have this notion of like, if I have to wait until I love myself before I start loving other people, it's going to take a minute, (laughs) right? So I get it. I understand what it's pointing to, but the notion, it's a both and for me. Yeah, because it's not zero sum. Like, like like, you're going to love yourself sometimes and you are not going to love yourself sometimes and valid probably both. Exactly. And so I can practice love for others when I'm loving myself. I can practice love for others when I'm not loving myself. I can be curious about new circumstances, even when I am afraid, but I need to be aware of that. And then I need to gather the resources I need to be able to operate in that fear. And so I place people in circumstances where they do get unsettled. And sometimes some of my students in my class will wind up in some sort of some level of a fear state for the whole semester. Yeah. And yet what we're doing is we're also gathering the resources. And one of the resources, by the way, is the practice you just discussed. Yeah. But that comes from experimentation. You either Mm -hmm. read that somewhere or you tried it or whatever. And it's this idea of like, actually, let's do two things at once. Try to get rid of the fear, but also gather these resources, experiment a little bit about how we can have some tools in our toolbox so that, I, okay, I know I'm going to be afraid. I know, I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert. I know I'm going to be, you know, going into the cocktail party small talk situation. I don't do small talk. I'm either in deep <laughs> or I'm at a monastery somewhere, right? Right, right? And yet my work requires me to go and be in those kind of interactions. If I waited until I felt comfortable in those kind of circumstances, or I waited until I didn't have unsettled emotions, 
that would be limiting. But instead, what I've done is I have workarounds. I've created ways to be able to be present in those places. And that's what I'm encouraging people to do, not because I have the five steps to doing that or the five tools to doing that. I'm really just pointing to it's an interesting learning that we all can and should be doing because the uncertainty is not going anywhere. So I'm an extrovert, as you can probably tell, uh, but I'm married to uh, an introvert who is a tenured professor. Uh, and I interviewed, uh, and I'm forgetting the uh, woman's name. She's an academic and uh, also an introvert. And she said uh, one of the things she learned from research is that when you're going into the cocktail party uh, and you don't know people, look for trios as opposed to duos. Because the trio conversation is a much easier conversation to get in because it's, you're, you're not going to be like a third wheel. And I was like, so I gave that advice to my wife who had to go to a conference and she uh, did it. And she was like, eh, that kind of worked. That was not too, not too bad. Um, where do you put the importance of self-awareness in this journey? Let's say we're practicing all this stuff and we want to get better at, at navigating these, these spaces. At what point do we need, really need to be self-aware if we're not, that's going to be difficult for us? It's the threshold. Okay. Right. But also it's a spectrum. Right. So it's, it's, so it's this entering into a process of understanding who and how we are at different points of inflection and different points of transition, because something that happens to or with you that is not a disruption might be extremely disruptive to me mm-hmm. and vice versa. So this idea of me understanding that about myself at a cocktail party, let's say, or I'll often say to my students, for whatever reason, the way that I've processed the fact that I've had money, not had money in my life uh, is that I have a deep confidence that if I lost everything, I'd be able to go and hustle, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I would go back to waiting tables. I would go clean houses. I, I have a deep confidence that I would go and find a way to make the money I need to be able to eat. So when I when I think about money, I pro- I'm pretty resilient there. I, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty, uh, the, the amount of stress I can take there and my ability to bounce back from it is pretty high. Throw me in those social circumstances and I'm less resilient. I might be a four out of 10 on that kind of a, of a measurement. So it's less about are, are you resilient or are you not? We often present this to people, right? Or that you should be more resilient. It becomes this monolith where really when we're talking about resilience, we're talking about, well, we have multiple dimensions in the world that we operate in. We're more or less vulnerable to being emotionally, physically, materially, socially disrupted by different things. If we can be aware of where we're more vulnerable, then what we can do, that self-awareness can lead to resourcing. It can lead to those workarounds. It can lead to a tool in your toolbox, like going up to three people instead of two. Yeah. And your wife may have gone and tried that and it may not have worked. Sure. But now maybe she could try five different things over five different cocktail parties until she finds the one that does work for her or the ones that work for her. And now she'll have those front of mind as she walks in. So the self-awareness, but not for navel gazing. Not self-awareness for self-awareness sake, but self-awareness so that we can understand where we're most vulnerable as a vehicle for then resourcing those vulnerabilities before we have a disruption that throws them into 
some kind of a challenge. It makes me think that that there's a, a kind of a superpower if you can blend that kind of self-awareness of, of what motivates you and, and what doesn't and what you're scared of and what you aren't with like Nick Epley's work around, we don't really know someone else unless we ask a lot of questions. This is like, we, 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 we think we do. Uh, and, but really, and, and if we can both self-disclose and, and prompt them to do self-disclosure, like uh, amazing things can happen. Uh, and and the, you have a thing you talk about participatory action research, uh, which to me sound a lot like improv. And I want you to sort of, can, can you explain to our audience what, what that is? I love it because there there are definitely improvisational aspects to it. No doubt about it. I, I, I love this parallel. I think we have to write something together because I I'm think there's something here. But um, participatory action research is field research, really. So mm-hmm. what happens is instead of me going into the lab or me putting surveys out into the world or even me doing straight interviews, I learn about a phenomenon by going and engaging with people in the phenomenon and helping them to solve problems really as a means for understanding that problem. So I, you know, 10, 12 years ago, whatever the timing is now, I just wanted to understand stuckness. I didn't really think about change or transitional space or liminal space, all that, you know, where the work came. I really, do you remember when everyone was talking about millennials failing to launch? It was a very popular thing to talk about. Oh, and there were all of these really simplistic, or I I believed at the time, overly simplistic reasons. Oh, they were overparented and they were entitled to all these things, et cetera. And that's not what I was seeing with my students. I was seeing the stuckness without a doubt, but I wasn't seeing this you know, because they were cavalier about launching. They were really, they were desperate to launch actually, but there was something that was stuck and I wanted to understand what that was. As I looked at it with them, right? So instead of let me study them in a lab, I just started meeting with them. Mm-hmm. And we started talking about the stuckness. And to your point, I started asking them, they started asking me, and we really engaged together in this unpacking of stuckness. I I started with my students who were transitioning from college to career and engaged two young women to create these workshops with me. Mm -hmm. And the three of us created workshops for their peers. And we wound up doing this semester over semester for quite some time. And what we uncovered was much less about ambition or training and much more about a culture where there were many, many different choices, many possible routes forward. Mm. And we know from psychological research that humans don't do well with many, many choices. Tyranny of choice or something. Yeah, that's, oh, wow. And so what was happening is how this whole directional, this navigational directional, who do I want to be? And how do I want to engage in this very different terrain where not only can I choose to either work for myself or work for a company, um, do, do I, you know, back in the day, people knew they were going to be married with two and a half children by the time they were 25. You go further back, they knew they were going to be that by the time they were 16. Now, suddenly, you're working with a group of women and they're asking, should I freeze my eggs? Should I have my ch- my children before tenure? Should I have them after tenure? Am I going to have children at all? Will I ever get married? Will I marry a man or a woman? Will I? Right? It's There is a whole new set of choices that exist culturally 
exist professionally and exist personally. So there's a sense-making challenge here in how one designs a life that did not exist a generation or two ago. And we've missed it. Mm. We've really missed it. And so we have students and young people that we've trained up in a linear, find your purpose, find your passion, find your why, and then set goals and objectives to go and find it. And that model no longer works. Hmm. But we have yet to replace it with a model that is taking all of these possibilities, trying to understand them, uh, triangulating the possibilities in the marketplace against who we are and who we want to be. And rather than saying you have to find these answers and then move toward them to recognize that we will spend definitely years, sometimes decades, exploring what we find as purposeful and exploring what we're passionate about. And that feels a lot like being wishy-washy to people. That feels a lot like failure to launch to people. This is interesting because I, for, for decades, I, I take a lot of informational interviews because that's how I got my job. And, and I just feel like it's a, like Adam Grant would yell at me if I don't do it. Um, <laughs> so uh, I get asked, you know, like, what, what, what should, for people starting on the career, what should they do? And, and I have always given this answer and I've questioned myself lately because I have not been in that position now for a very, very long time. Um, but as you're talking, I'm like, this might still be good advice, which is the thing I did was I knew I wanted to work in a theater. So I went to a theater and I took whatever I, I was a dishwasher at Second City. That was my first gig, 1988. <clears throat> a story I often tell. The other guy who was hired uh, that same week as a dishwasher was John Favreau, the film director. And we both had, <laughs> we both had mullets. Um, <laughs> my wife has the photo. Uh, but I, I think the thing about that is a little bit of what you're talking about with experimentation. It's like, okay, I think I'm interested in national public radio. Can I get a gig down at Navy Pier with national public, you know, doing an internship or doing something? And then I see what goes on there and maybe I have an idea of what path might be open to me. And, and then I could maybe go somewhere else and be, but, but it's that sort of physically putting yourself in a place to then sort of see, okay, what happens here? I think that that is great advice, but better advice for someone who knows they want to be in the theater. Do you, yeah. right? Do you see you started with the notion that you want to be in the theater? Yeah. And what, we're, what I'm seeing a lot more of is people who are unclear about, about where, they, where they might want to be. Where they might want to be. And that makes a lot of sense in a world where... There are industries that don't exist yet that will be the industry that these young people will be in. Yeah. We're not dealing with this concrete 20th century world where here are the paths and now the challenge is to pick a path. It is that there are some paths. Some of those paths will not even exist five years from now. Some will. And then there's other paths that will emerge that we're not even imagining yet. And so there is a different experience to enter into a world in that way. And so some people still want to be a doctor. Yeah. Right. And so for some people, they know they want to be a doctor. And I would say the medical world is one of those that still have a fairly linear path, right? In the education mm -hmm. you would get, mm -hmm. then you go for a residency. I'm not saying those industries aren't changing, mm -hmm. but- but there are certain paths that still exist. And for people who make a choice to go on those sorts of paths, then they really can take 
that sort of advice and the advice that we've been giving for decades. For those who, and I think these people have always existed, by the way, but we just didn't even have a space for them, for the people who actually never have, never know what they want to be when they grow up. Right. Because they don't have a singular interest. And that group of people really bubbled up in my research. So when I was running this, this, this whole notion of, of, of jack of all trades and master of none. Yeah. Uh, this is different now. I, I work with, uh, women who are 35 to 37 years old who are, are masters across multiple domains who also have two children at home, et cetera. And the only advice when they're hitting a point where they're at capacity is, well, you need to pick a lane or you need to start saying no. And what they're saying to me is, I've just spent a decade and a half developing expertise across these domains. I don't really want to abandon one or the other. Mm -hmm. And what I'm inviting them to is rather than having to be reductive and reducing down, pick a lane there actually is an opportunity to actually zoom out one level and begin making sense across those domains for something that they might not even have imagined, how those lanes come together in some, into something else. And it's remarkable because people are actually able to keep all of these different things, but apply them in new circumstances in new ways, and they're becoming the innovators Right in their fields, because what they're doing is they're combining things. And we didn't have a lot of space for combining things. You and I are about the same age. I was in public relations when I, when I was in my, my first career, because academia is a second career for me. And the marketing and public relations people didn't even work together. Hmm. <laughs> they were two different departments, and they didn't even share information. And now... That would never happen because you're talking pre-internet and so on and so forth. So this idea of integration and looking across domains and integrating, which was very impossible. Back in the day, if you started in one field, the ability to then cross-pollinate over into another field was really hard and you would have to start over and climb from the bottom again. It's not the case anymore. So you have people who are really operating across domains, but we're not giving them space or even helping them to develop the practices for making sense of that kind of complex ecosystem and then helping them to see where that can be applied to a world that quite frankly needs that kind of cross pollinated solution finding. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a on story, but I want to go on this one, one or two beats more. Um, so one of the reasons I think that so many successful people have come out of Second City. And it's 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 weird, right? If you think from Mike, Mike Nichols and Elaine May to Cecily Strong and A.D. Bryant and all those people and everyone in between. I mean, it's like, that's just weird because it's not like one casting person. So what is it? Wh- what's in the water that they all drank? And and to me, it's when when you improvise, when you learn the, the, the skills of improvisation and then apply those. <clears throat> um, and everyone thinks improvisation is because like, is, we say it's making something out of nothing, but it's actually not. You're drawing from all the different things you know and you're mixing them together. Exactly. Then, there's an there's an alchemy uh, uh, to it, and and you sort of learn how to do that sort of fearlessly. And so these people aren't just successful in terms of like they're good actors. It's like no, they they craft jobs and careers and 
Tina Fey's a good friend and she's done Broadway and film and TV and written a best-selling book and has a production company and produce. And there's all these different things, um, often with other people who are steeped in, in this world as well. And one of the key things that you learn as an improviser is how to do, how to be a divergent thinker. But also if you think about what improv is, it's like basically going ping pong between system one, system two. Yes. And that's huge. That is not something that I think people get to practice. And, 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 and if you look at the future of work, you know, on the World Economic Forum, what they list, it's all those things of like problem solving, storytelling, creativity, uh, you know, the, the so-called soft skills. You and I could make millions of dollars if we come up with a new term for that. <laughs> no doubt about it. Well, well, we are absolutely singing the same tune. And improvisation is one practice. Mm-hmm. that someone can use to practice these skills. And I would say that for me, I'm not coming and here's another practice. I'm banging the drum. We need to practice. We need to practice. That's Whatever So I'm, I'm just banging. A, yeah. Because for some people, improv will be exactly the right resource to be able to practice those chops. And for other people, it will be debilitating or they won't enjoy it or whatever it is. And what I'm saying is yes to improv, or no to improv. Right. <laughs> go try it. And if it's a yes, then put right. yourself behind it. And if it's a no, then go find something else. Something else. Yep. Right. But this notion that we need to practice these skills is for B, the uniformity here, because yep. Yep. ultimately those silos, we sat for years saying we need to break down the silos, but never saying, how do you operate without silos? <laughs> and how do you practically operate without silos? And I think that's what improv does, right? It's not a certain kind of comedy or a certain kind of in- engagement. It is breaking down silos across in in the moment. And, and you know, you know who else learned that? I was just talking to a twenty year. <clears throat> he was a Navy uh, fighter pilot for twenty years on aircraft carriers. Then worked in the Department of Defense, the Army, because they figured out they had a decentralized enemy. They had to change everything. They were so the, the army was so ahead of this because they knew they couldn't do top down uh, command and control, and so then they shifted to the army has more sports psychologists in terms of their their learning. It's fascinating talking to this guy, and I'm like, well, of course, and and people like Stanley McChrystal and others I know are on the speaking circuit talking about this, but yeah, that and that's that Navy SEAL training is very different from improv, but it is it is a embodied practice. I love that you just brought up this example because I just read someone uh, reviewed my book yesterday Mm -hmm. and he ex-military, still a military contractor, security, risk management in that kind of world. And it was fascinating what he talked about because I've always said we, we underestimate how much the boys coming home from World War II Mm-hmm. influence the way that we do business and we create systems and we create organizations. And yet we use terms like mission and strategy right. and, um, and capturing market share. Deployment. And that all came out of that, right? Mm-hmm. So that, mili- that hier- hierarchical military thinking that you're talking about is how we created organizations. Now, the army... now knows that we're in a different world, right? That's the whole VUCA language comes out of there, et cetera, right? But we're not changing business and organizations. Why would we? Why would we change schools? Why would we have all the science that shows us that this is not how people learn? 
And so what's ha- so this gentleman who wrote this review, he actually had a moment in this review, which was it, it warmed my heart, really, mm-hmm. because he acknowledged that there were certain things that he enjoyed about the book because they they dovetailed with his thinking and he called himself on confirmation bias there. Mm-hmm. But then he said, lest you think this is a review that is all confirmation bias, there actually is a part that really made me think differently. And he said that he recognizes that he brought that life and death hierarchical, that when something's going wrong, you have to make a fast decision, better to make a fast wrong decision than to make no decision, et cetera. And he said it more articulately than I am. Mm -hmm. He said, however, that is a different context. Mm-hmm. And that level of speed, that level of need to react immediately in the moment that was kind of taken from one domain into the other is not as necessary on a day-to-day basis when you're having a supply chain issue. Right. And it doesn't mean you're going to sit on your hands for three weeks, but what it does mean is that there is time for a pause. There is time for an inquiry. There's time for understanding in a different way. And I think that even in improv, where you are on a stage, and, 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 and to me, improv feels a lot like firefighting in this in this metaphor, right? Okay. Because there's time, but not a lot, not a lot. right? You're there, but there, it's not that there's no pause. No, slow it there, down. There, there is pause there. There is a, there's that beat mm-hmm. and you can take that beat. You don't want it to be a beat and a half or three beats because, you know, at some point you'll use the silence like that, that the silence is all part. That's all part of the notes. And that is a practice. That is a perspective, even before the the practice, the perspective. And it's interesting because I'm thinking about one organization that uses my work and was using it before COVID. Mm -hmm. And what they said to me was, We didn't have a faster answer. We didn't have a faster understanding of what to do with this completely on, you know, circumstance that was nobody could understand in those first days. They said what we did have was an approach and a language. We knew it was a what now moment. We knew we were opening up transitional learning space. We knew that we now had to open inquiry, et cetera. And just that, just having that kind of a shift from business as usual to now we're in transitional learning space. What do we know? What don't we know? How might we find out? Gave people agency at a time that people were feeling like they had no agency. Mm-hmm. And just that ability to have that agency and then open inquiry and get curious about the response to COVID as opposed to being afraid mm-hmm. if we don't respond fast, the world is going to crumble. Right. Gave them peace of mind and allowed them to come together as a team in a, in a much less reactive way. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the heart and the soul of it. And it sounds to me, again, I'm no improv expert, but it sounds to me that's what the, the practice yeah. of improv can give people. Yeah, I think the other thing for myself is is recognizing that um, uh, being first uh and and is not always like the best place to be in in business. So like I I ran a video store when I was a kid, and um, 
you know, the VHS was not the superior uh, quality tape. Your beta. Beta was way better. And, and everyone did music on beta, but VHS was the first to make 60 minutes. And yep. so, you know, so like, it, it, and, you know, and uh, Netflix and Blockbuster and all, yeah. you have so many of these stories. And so like, where's Blackberry? Yeah, oh my God. The Blackberry. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That was the first first you could really send emails was on the Blackberry. And that's mm-hmm. definitely not where we find ourselves, you know, looking for innovation. I mean, I'm sure there's a couple of people out there with their Blackberries. They're still holding on to that thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we always end the podcast with the yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yes, I have a yes and story. And it, it, I think it does speak to um, some of what we've been talking about. I became a college professor because I met someone in a coffee shop. <laughs> yeah. All right. I already like this. <laughs> uh, I never uh, intended to be a college professor. It was not even on my mind. And I had a moment where I was making a transition and I was writing a book at the time I had a contract. So I was going to the same coffee shop, working on the book, had left marketing and public relations and didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't intend to be a writer either, but I got this book. I was just doing, I was, I was in my own exploration mm-hmm. and I was standing there talking to the woman who was making my coffee in the coffee shop, waiting for the cappuccino and just like, oh, I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Taking a couple of classes and even that, the content, I don't really care about, but I do love watching the teachers and seeing what works and what doesn't. Who the hell knows? Maybe I'm supposed to be a teacher. And she turned to me and said, you know, that group of guys who's always sitting here in the coffee shop, one of those guys is a teacher. You should go talk to him. Hmm. And she walked me over. She introduced me to the guy. We sat for two hours. And at the end of the conversation, she said, he said to me, you're a born teacher. I want you to start teaching at St. John's University for me in the fall. Oh, my God. And uh, I wasn't even done with my master's because I was taking those classes. Mm-hmm. And that was a real yes and moment for me because I can't say that I would have said no because I'm kind of a yes person in general. But it was a big step. I had not taught before. I hadn't done any of that. This was a stranger. This I came to know later that he was the chairman of the marketing department. It was just a real serendipitous moment. Yeah. And um, that that really was a life changer and opened up a huge inquiry that later, now I'm 15 years later, still at St. John's and a tenured professor there. Uh, it's so, so, and, and now I went for my PhD, all kinds of roads opened up, but that's, I think, part of the reason that I feel this improv connection, I'll be looking more into this as well, because it was very improvisational. And it wasn't a decision. Now I'll be a college professor. It was now I'll go teach this class. Yeah. Now right. I'll go teach this class and see what happens. And um, and if I can just indulge uh, very, okay. very quickly, I always like to tell the end of the story in respect to the gentleman who was that guy I spoke to. Yeah. When I went back to the same coffee shop the next day, uh, the woman, same woman behind uh, the cash register said to me, did you hear about John was his name? And I said, no, I did not. And she said, well, after he left here yesterday, he went to the doctor and was diagnosed with uh, stage four stomach cancer, and they gave him three months to live. No. And of course, I forgot about teaching and I forgot about any of that. I had just met him for two hours, but had a profound moment with him. 
And the next day he showed up and I'm not much of a hugger or whatever, but I just went over to him and I gave him a hug. And I said, I'm just so sorry to hear uh, about your health. And he leaned down in my ear and he said, you will teach at St. John's before I die. Wow. And he lasted for seven, not for three months and took some of that precious time more than he probably should at some level to get me down and established and settled and introduced to a place that I found out later he had worked for 24 years. He was quite a fixture there. So I also, my yes end included, um, I, I believe, uh, leaving a little bit of John at St. John's after uh, he passed. That's unbelievable. I mean, the, 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 the what a profound thing to happen and all those, all, all those things, right? And, and we've talked a lot about on this podcast, this idea of we don't talk enough about suffering at work. And because everyone, everyone goes through these things, we walk through the world, su- you know, suffering and finding joy and suffering and finding joy. Um, one doesn't exist without the other. That's the sort of yin and yang of it. Um, and so y- you have all of that in that, in that, in that story, in that, in that relationship. And that will always be there. Yeah. And, and I tell this story, I always have to finish it because I can't tell the first part without bringing John into it. And I tell it to my students every semester, just Good. because I think it's important. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know why I don't have to finish that sentence. No, Heidi Brooks uh, at Yale told me a thing that she does with every new cohort is she hands out st- slips of paper and says, anonymously, anom- anonymously, write down some pain that you have in your life right now. And then she just reads every single slip of paper. I love that. I love it too. It's a, what, what, a, what a lesson in empathy in terms of at the beginning. Let's start here. Let's start here. So mm-hmm. I think the things like that are, are very, very important. Um, and I think bo- it comes very, very quickly. I think it yeah. comes back to the work in this way and our part of the conversation where we talked about operating in fear. Mm. Because what you're saying right now about we have joy, we have suffering, we have fear, we have curiosity, we have confidence, we have lack of confidence. All of those things are part of the mix all of the time. Mm-hmm. And the notion that we can only navigate when we're on the plus side of that spectrum and that we have to be stuck when we're on the negative side of that spectrum, I think holds us back. Learning yeah. how to be in the joy and in the pain, in the confidence and in the lack of confidence. And how do we, how do we navigate when all of that is true of our whole self, I think uh, is compelling. It's a compelling question for people to ask themselves and to develop practices around. Right. That, that, that you don't need to be daunted by the complexity because the entire human condition is in this space. We're (laughs) all, we're all in this. Exactly. Uh, the book is called Stop, Ask, Explore, Learn to Navigate Change in Times of Uncertainty. Joan Ball, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.